Good morning. Our reading today is in Romans, first chapter, verses 18 through 32, and it's in the ESV. This is titled, God's Wrath on Unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. But they they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know man's though though they know God's righteous decree that they who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to them who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Excuse me. Thank you, Redonda. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Questions like these are the building blocks of worldviews or ways of making sense of the world around us. Christians, however, don't have to search for answers to questions like these because they've already been given to us. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus in the book of the Bible bearing his name, uh, writes to Christians telling them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
So for the past two weeks, we've been looking at what we believe as Christians generally, not as Baptists specifically or even evangelicals or Protestants more broadly, but, whether, uh, but rather what we believe as the church Catholic, lowercase c, meaning the whole or universal, or we could even say historical Christianity. And for the most part, all the beliefs that we're covering are foundational, that are foundational to Christianity, are spelled out in what's known as the Great Tradition, which is the collection of four creeds or summary statements of belief from the first four to five hundred years of Christianity. And these creeds don't have any authority on their own beyond what the scripture plainly teaches. But they do give us a record of consensus or agreement among early Christians and church leaders about what the faith once for all delivered to the saints actually is. And so in the first week of our series on what we believe, the beliefs that make us Christian, we talked about our commitment to the Bible, our belief in the Bible. And we had this summary statement, we believe in the Holy Bible, the inspired, inerrant word of God composed of the books of the Old and New Testaments, the only certain rule of saving faith and practice. So we believe that the Bible is God's book from God about God. It is the source, the, the fountain, the, even we could say the foundation or bedrock of everything else we believe. Last week we looked at who God is, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And we had this summary statement. We believe in the blessed Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now there's much more that we could say about God, but it is, it is pivotal that we acknowledge that God is triune. Well, this week we're going to look at, start to look at God's works and the rest of the storyline of the Bible. And we're going to look specifically at creation and the fall. So here's, here is what we believe as Christians concerning creation and the fall. Our summary statement is, we believe God spoke and made all things from nothing, things seen and unseen, including mankind, both male and female, whom he made in his image, in a state of innocence, though fallen through sin, on account of which the human race is under God's wrath. That's what we believe. So what, is, what does that mean? It means that everything that exists, exists because God made it. All matter. Everything in the material world, along with all angels and demons, including the devil himself, exists because God has made them. Which means that God created people also. And God did something in creating people that set the human race above everything else in his creation, including angels and demons. And that is, he made us in his image. Now, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. So that doesn't mean that we have two eyes and two ears and a nose and a mouth because that's what God has. Being made in God's image means several things. One thing that it means is God made us, 
He made Adam and Eve, that is. He made them in holiness and righteousness. And they were morally upright without sin. Another thing that it means is that God made them in fellowship with himself. Being an image with God or imaging God involves communing with God. And then there's also the capacities that God gave them. Thought, reason, creativity, rule, emotion, relationship, and so forth. It also means, what this statement means, is that even though man's original condition was moral purity, righteousness, holiness, and fellowship with God, sin has changed that. Sin has changed all of that. Man's disobedience or rebellion has entered into the equation and messed everything up. It also means that sin has defaced the image of God in man. People still bear God's image, but it's twisted, it's distorted, it's perverted. It's not like it was originally. And that brokenness of relationship also means that mankind is now at enmity and has hostility with God, being under his judgment, being subject to his wrath and his anger on account of sin. So if this is what we believe, and I unpacked it a little bit, that's what it means, then there's a whole slew of other things that we can affirm or deny in light of those truths. So here's some affirmations and denials that flow from what we've just, just heard. We affirm that the earth and everything in it is the result of divine creation. We deny that it's the result of evolutionary processes. We affirm that God created a literal Adam and Eve. We deny that they were simply the result of natural selection. We affirm that God made plants and animals and people and therefore all have value. We deny that all living organisms have equal worth and value and that animal life, plant life, and human life should be treated equally. We affirm that human life is precious. We deny that either abortion or euthanasia upholds the dignity and value of life. We affirm that both man and woman were made in God's image. We deny that men and women are unequal as image bearers of God or that either is inferior or superior to the other. We affirm that manhood and womanhood are distinct and were created so by God in the beginning. We deny that manhood and womanhood are fluid or interchangeable or a matter of choice. We affirm that God created man good, but that through sin he became evil and passed that nature to his offspring. We deny that people are basically good, born neutral, or that they begin their lives with a blank slate. We affirm that God made man with a soul that will last forever. We deny that the souls of all people will go to be with God when they die. So this is the foundation of a Christian worldview, what we believe about who we are and how we got here and the purpose of life. We see that God is the maker and sustainer of all things. 
We see that God made us in his image, and we see that God made us for fellowship with himself. And if we believe this is true, it will have great implications for the way that we make sense of the world around us and how we navigate through life. Now, in each week of this series, we're looking specifically at three questions. What we believe as Christians, why we believe it, and why it matters. So we've just talked about the, the what we believe. Now let's look at the why we believe it. And why do we believe this? And the answer is because that's what the Bible teaches. You see, God's role as the creator of all things is both referred to and assumed in texts all throughout the Old and New Testament. And Isaiah, and we're going to run through a bunch of them. In Isaiah 40, verses 25 through 26, God is talking to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. So God credits himself here with the creation of the stars, which are beyond numbering. And then just two chapters later in Isaiah 42, 5, he adds to his credit the creation of the heavens and the earth and all people as well. He says, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. So God is emphatically clear that he is the cause. He is the reason for everything that is. The psalmist writes in Psalm 148, verses 1 through 6, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Again, God is cited as the source of the universe. Sun, moon, stars, and even the angels too all came into existence by his word, by his command. This is often referred to as creation ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means from nothing. God spoke and from nothing, everything has been made. And this is what Christians believe to be true, not because we've been convinced or persuaded by scientific method or reason, but primarily and first off, through faith in the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Referring to the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones 
or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And the primary text of scripture that most people think of regarding God's creation of the world and everything in it is the book of Genesis, which means beginnings. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're told, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The book of Genesis is also where we see all of the other beliefs that we've touched on this morning introduced as well. Beliefs about mankind's relation to God, man and woman's relationship before God, and the value of human life over and above plant and animal life, and the nature of man and the judgment of God. Following the opening of chapter 1, we're told that God made everything that he has made in the span of six days. And then on the sixth day, we're told in verses 26 through 28 of chapter 8, then God said, let us, which is most understand a reference to the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in it, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So here, just in, in verses 26 through 28, we see the creation of man and woman. We see the equality of man and woman. We see the dignity of man and woman. We see the superiority of man and woman above plants and above animals. And then jumping ahead two chapters, in chapter 3, we see the fall of man and woman. In Genesis chapter 2, God commands man that he shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden for in the day or in the moment that he eats it, he will die. And then in the next chapter, chapter 3, we see Satan in the form of a serpent, a snake, approaching the woman and engaging the woman with regard to the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, twisting God's word, calling God's truthfulness, God's goodness into question. And we're told that the woman takes and eats the fruit and she gives some of the fruit to her husband who also takes and he eats it. And we're told that the man and woman went from being in chapter one naked and unashamed to knowing that they were naked, feeling great shame and hiding from God. And so God comes and he engages man and woman and he, he knows of their disobedience and then they finally confess their disobedience and God begins to pronounce curses on the serpent and on the woman and on the man. And in verses 17 through 19 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
So the, the burden of, of leadership falls on man. And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So here in chapter 3 we see God's condemnation of man's actions. We see the curse of sin on all creation. We see the decree of death to mankind, but something else has changed in man. From what is known as this original sin came a change in man's nature, producing more and more sin as there became more and more people. And so this is chapter 3. Over in chapter 4, we see one of Adam and Eve's sons murder his brother, and then shortly thereafter, we're told of the murder of someone else by a, a completely different character. And then by chapter 6, we're told that the whole world is so full of sin that God is grieved for this and decides to send a worldwide flood to cleanse the earth of sin and sinners, sparing one man, Noah, and his family, and two of every kind of animal, and seven of certain types of animals. And so God floods the earth. God kills off the majority of, of creation, both man and animal. And then finally, we're told that after a long period of time, the waters subside, and the, the giant ship that they are on comes to rest on a mountain, and that finally vegetation begins to flourish again, and Noah and his family and the animals, they all leave the ark. And we're told in chapter 8 that after they are now off the ark and ready to resume normal life on the earth, Noah builds an altar and on this altar, he makes a sacrifice to God. And in chapter 8, verse 21, it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we see that from early on, from a young age, God identifies, not just in a few people, not in this one or that one, but in mankind as a whole, from a very early age, evil thoughts and evil desires. Now, we'll come back to this in just a second, but before we leave the book of Genesis to jump over to the New Testament, in Genesis chapter 9, God is giving instructions to Noah and his family about what life should look like now on the earth after the flood. And in verses 3 through 6, God says, every moving thing, if you'll recall, God told Adam and Eve that they had every plant and they had every uh, fruit that had seed in it for food. 
That was what God gave them, their prescribed diet. But now here in chapter 9, it says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For his from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So, yes, we see here that man is granted the freedom to enlarge his diet. Now he's not just eating plants and fruits. He's also eating meat. But there's a bigger point in this passage and it's the sanctity of human life. The sanctity of human life. God upholds life as being special, the life of man, to the point that God prescribes capital punishment as the consequence for taking human life and as a deterrent to others who would think about taking human life. He says if an animal or a man takes the life of another person, their blood will be shed. And he gives the reason for this. It's not just, well, we've got to have some boundaries for society, or everyone will be running around killing off someone every time they get upset about something. It's not just for the good order of civilization, but rather God cites why he is imposing this judicial restraint and it is because man is made in the image of God and so therefore all human life has value because of the imago Dei the image of God but this image we've said it's it's defaced it's marred it's twisted because of sin and all of humanity has inherited this because the Bible says we are in Adam. Adam is our representative. He's our team captain or our federal head. And so we have inherited the guilt of his original sin and the defaced nature of the image of God. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is contrasting the effects of being in Adam versus being in Christ and the effects of Adam's actions on those he represents versus the effect of Christ's actions on those he represents. And for our purposes today, we're going to focus strictly on Adam's actions and the consequences of his actions on those he represents. And so in a bullet point fashion in Romans chapter 5, you should be able to see here, it says that sin came into the world. Verse 12 of Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, 
Therefore, as one trespass or breaking of the law led to condemnation for all men, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul echoes the same sentiment regarding the condition of all humanity since Adam. All humanity since Adam. And in the first three verses of chapter 2 alone, we're told that before becoming Christians, the saints in Ephesus were dead in trespasses and sins. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 2, following the course of this world. Verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan. So people dead in sin, following Satan. Verse 3, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Remember back in Genesis chapter 8, those are evil desires, evil even from youth. And then also in verse 3, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you, did you catch that? Like the rest of mankind. He's saying, Christians, this is who you used to be. This is what the rest of humanity is like. Children of wrath. Objects of God's fierce and righteous anger. You see, this is the, this is the human condition. And it was put on perfect display in the text that Redonda read for us this morning out of Romans chapter 1, where you see people who are made in the image of God, owing God worship, but instead reject God and worship other things. And it's not just like, well, we worship this instead of worshiping God. But what you see is the effects of rejecting God, that God gives people over to their sinful desires. He lets them run with it. Oh, that's what you want? By all means, let me get out of the way. And so there's this whole litany of sins. And it, it, it goes to the very fundamental core of people. That we get messed up in our own identity of what it means to be man and what it means to be woman. And what intimacy and romance and relationship looks like. But it's, it's not just this really awful group of people over here that get marriage and relationships messed up. Paul's not just pointing the finger. He comes over here and he says, and here's some other outworkings of this nature of man. Gossip. Boasting. Disobedience to parents. Don't just think it's one class of sinners. All mankind are children of wrath, and this is what flows out of them. This is, this is what we believe about God the Creator and about His creation and its current state under the curse of sin, under God's wrath because of mankind's disobedience. So why does it matter? What? We know what we believe, and we know why we believe it. Why does it matter? And it matters because knowing God created all things from nothing, which is the answer to a question, 
and knowing that he created us in his image answers the questions of how we got here and our purpose in life. We were made by God. We were made for fellowship with God. These are worldview-forming questions and answers. It also shows us how to respect and value life, specifically human life. It shows us how to affirm the goodness of God's creation, including things like gender. And it shows us why we should respect and value other people irrespective of anything else about them. Likewise, it matters because knowing that we are sinners by nature and under the judgment of God answers the question of who we are. It informs us of our incredible capacity for evil and in part explains why there is so much wrong in the world around us. But it also matters because it tells us about our greatest need in life, the need of forgiveness of sins and peace with God. There used to be a, a, a large farming operation in northeast Missouri that had, as part a component of it, it had a large dairy farm. And there were these large tankers. You may have even seen them on the highway possibly years ago. I don't think that they're still out anymore. I think they've been sold off. But it used to be this large tanker, and, and down the side it would say, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Heartland, Heartland Farms and Ministries. And, and that used to be a real popular, real popular bumper sticker and, and different phrase that you'd see on T-shirts and whatnot. Jesus is the answer. But someone once said, well, Jesus is the answer, but you haven't told me what the question is. What we've talked about today explains to us what the question is. How can a holy creator God forgive wicked and rebellious creatures who have treasonously rejected him? How can sinful man who is a child of wrath, who has evil desires from his youth, from early on in his life, how can he enjoy relationship with God? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. You see, if we don't understand our beginnings, if we don't understand where we came from, who we are, then we won't know the question. And so when someone tells us Jesus is the answer, it won't really make any sense to us. So, this is what we believe. That God spoke and made all things from nothing. Things seen and unseen. Including mankind, both male and female, whom he made in his image. In a state of innocence, though fallen through sin on account of which the human race is under God's wrath. Do you understand what this means for your life? Do you understand 
the question that this poses? And do you understand that Jesus is your only hope? And have you embraced Jesus today and surrendered your life to him? Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning with humility. Lord, all of these scriptures that we've heard today tell us quite plainly that you are the rightful owner and ruler over everything that we can see, over everything that exists, even things that we can't see, that you have made all things and that you uphold all things. And when we consider that, Lord, and yet stop and acknowledge that what would seem like the entire world is running headlong in the opposite direction, away from you and away from truth and away from righteousness and away from holiness, away from worship and away from obedience. Father, it is, it is truly a mystery why you have not done what you did in the days of Noah and many times more to people like us. Father, we thank you that you, though just, are merciful. And we thank you that you've put forth your son Jesus to take away your wrath so that we might be reconciled to you and so that the image of God might truly be restored in us. What, was, what has been twisted and perverted might be repaired and restored because of Christ. Father, I pray that, that we would meditate on these truths and that they would cause us to honor you and to thank you and to worship you they would also cause us to respect our fellow man, to honor life, and to affirm the goodness and the sanctity of life. But Father, I pray that it would give us a greater appreciation for what Christ has done for us and a greater commitment to telling people both about their need and about the question that Jesus is the answer to. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.